Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good afternoon, everyone, on the East Coast and Central and Mountain Time. And I know those in, in, on the West Coast is still the morning, approximately 11 o'clock, your time, PST time. This is uh, Kennard Brown again, your host for the Merciful Service of God Biblical Instructional Program. Uh, today is January 9, 2010. I earlier today uh, did part two of what wives should do to have a happy marriage, and I'm so motivated and inspired to complete this Bible study today. So this is part three, and I do have part one, and I also have what husbands should do to have a happy marriage. Uh, I didn't break that into parts, but that uh, is also the whole series on uh, what husbands and wives should do. So you have the first one in the archives, um, what husbands should do, and then you have part one, what wives should do, part two, and this is part three. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump into this uh, based on the advice of uh, my friend Nelson just uh, told me that I just need to go ahead and just jump into it and then at the end uh, talk about any world events and so forth. So. All right, so I was talking about the economic situation here and that the economic situation is so bad that it forces the husband and the wife to have to work when, biblically, God wants just the man to work outside the home and the woman to work inside the home and raise and take care of the kids. Now, there are exceptions to that, and one of the the biggest exceptions right now one of the biggest exceptions right now is the fact that the way the economy is now is forcing a woman to have to go out there and work. And I know a lot of you wives and women can relate to that. So I was reading this wonderful article by Jeannie Sahadi, a CNN Money senior writer. It's, Are You Worse Off Than Mom and Dad? I'm sure many of you listening to this can say that, yes, I am. But... Uh, it says many of us, according to the latest research, don't have it as easy as our parents. And you can Google this uh, simply by typing in, are you worse off than mom and dad? And you'll be able to see what I'm seeing here. Now, I'm reading the rest of this article here. Um, the wealthy are costing you. This is the subheading. It says, here's another reason the cost of leaving it to Beaver may have become more prohibitive. The consumer behavior of the wealthy has upped the ante for everyone else. It says, Cornell professor of economics Robert H. Frank caused the phenomenon the expenditure cascade. As he wrote, when top earners build larger mansions, 
they shift the frame of reference that defines an acceptable house for those just slightly below them on the income scale. And when those people respond by building bigger houses, they in turn shift the frame of reference for those just below them, and so on all the way down. The median size of a newly built home in 1970 was 1,500 square feet, Frank notes. But by 2000, it had increased to 2,300 square feet, even though the median family's income hasn't changed much. But here's another subheading, but, but aren't we better off in other ways? So, but aren't we often better... I'm sorry, but aren't we better off in other ways, but aren't we better off in other ways? It says, while it may be true that a great number of middle-class families are more strained financially than their parents, some would argue there are a lot of ways our lives have improved relative to a generation ago. Safety standards are higher, health care has advanced, women now enjoy far greater career opportunities at any time in history, which they think that's positive. I don't, you know, based upon the Bible and, and how God feels, that's not positive and it's no longer considered unusual or prohibitively expensive to visit places around the globe. And there are some things that actually cost less than they did in your parents' day. Clothes, for instance, you now have a greater number of choices at lower cost thanks to discounters such as Target's Marshall's Warren and Tayagi Note. Now, as I noted er earlier in, the, in part two of this Bible study, God envisions a woman staying at home and also uh, using the, uh, the skill and trade of sewing clothes to save the family money on having to buy clothes. So anyway, but according to the authors, that may be little comfort to the family who worries that paying for their daughter's Girl Scout outfit might compromise their ability to make the mortgage next month. So this is a very excellent article. And then this is an interesting uh, chart that they have here. It's called The Trap. According to Warren and Tayagi, it now takes two incomes to provide what one income provided 30 years ago, and it has 1973 family, one breadwinner, the income was just $38,700, and the mortgage was just 5010 This is uh, annual. Insurance is 1030 Taxes was 9288 And this one car, making car payments, was 5140 So the income left over was 17834 after that. Now, you have today's family. You have two breadwinners. It's $67,800. The mortgage expense is nineteen. Or, I'm sorry, is nine thousand per year. Insurance is one thousand six fifty. Taxes are twenty two thousand three seventy four. Cars, two cars, is eight thousand two hundred dollars. And preschool, uh, preschool rather, daycare, which in nineteen seventy three was not as popular as it is today, uh, is nine thousand six seventy. So the income left over is less, is seventeen thousand forty five. And yet, you have people making more money because there's two incomes. <laughs> so that that's pretty interesting there. So that that's what this article is talking about, the two income trap and and many, many husbands and wives can vouch for the fact that uh they are definitely worse off than their parents. And their parents back as early as nineteen seventy three, you had one breadwinner and uh things were not as bad as they are today. Well, you have to have two breadwinners, unfortunately. So anyway, that's that fact. Now, let's address a couple of objections that I know many women have. They try to justify not obeying their husband or submitting to his rule as God commands a woman to do. The first most popular objection that 
I, I, have, I am familiar with. I can't be forced to obey my husband. Now, that's true, you wives and women. God does not force anyone to obey him, and God does not force you to obey your husband. However, God commands that a wife obey her husband in everything as long as it does not violate the Torah or the law of God. This is found in Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 24. Let's turn there. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. So Ephesians, and this program will be two hours. I should be able to get this done in two hours. Okay. Let's see. In the complete Jewish Bible version, you can read along with me in the King James. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives should submit to their husbands as they do to the Lord. So right there, God expects a wife to submit to her husband as they would submit to God or the Lord. Verse 23. Because the husband is the head of the wife, just as the Messiah, as head of the Messianic community, or the church, is himself the one who keeps the body safe. Verse 24. Just as the Messianic community submits to the Messiah, or to Jesus, so also wives should submit to their husbands in, does it say some things? No. In everything. In everything. Not just what you want, but you should submit to your husband in everything. And that's not from my own mind, that's from the Word of God. Now, whenever we disobey God, we sin. This is found in 1 John 3, verse 4. Let's turn there. I'm going to read this in the King James Version, because it's very clear in the King James Version. 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verse 4. It states, whosoever commits sin transgresseth also the law of the Torah, or Torah, colon, continue that, for sin is the transgression of the law. So whenever we sin, we're violating God's law. And one of his laws is to obey your husband in all things and, and everything. And so when we disobey, we get cursed. Now, if you obey, then you are blessed. If you disobey, you are cursed. Let's, let's look at this here a little more closely here. And I'm going to read this uh, in a complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. Again, let's turn to Deuteronomy, because many people don't understand this. They don't understand that there's blessings along with the cursings uh, in re relation to God's law or Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, starting in verse 1, it states, If you listen closely, and this is in the complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake, if you listen closely to what Adonai, or your Lord, your God says, observing and obeying all his mitzvah or commandments, which I am giving you today, Adonai, O the Lord, your God will raise you high above all the nations on earth, and all the following blessings will be yours in abundance. Uh, as I've explained many times in this program, what God wants for Israel, he wants for everybody. His law applies to every, for anyone who wants to obey him. Uh, this can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it states that they all drink of the same spiritual drink, those the nation of Israel, and, and those today, and, and the fact that all these things were written down for our examples today, that is explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Anyway, getting back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 2. And all the following blessings will be yours in abundance if you do what Adonai, your God, says. A blessing on you in the city, and a blessing on you in the countryside. So right there, God is stating that if we all, individually or collectively, obey him, this is what's going to happen. You will be blessed in the city. And, and you will be blessed in the countryside. Verse 4, 
a blessing on the fruit of your body, in other words, your children, the fruit of your land and the fruit of your livestock, the young of your cattle and flocks. Verse 5, a blessing on your grain basket and kneading bowl, a blessing on you when you go out and a blessing on you when you come in. The Lord will cause your enemies attacking you to be defeated before you. They will advance on you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord or Adonai will order a blessing to be with you in your barns and in everything you undertake. He will bless you in the land Adonai your God is giving you. So God is going to bless you, anyone that obeys his commandments. Verse 9, Adonai will establish you as a people separated out for himself as he has sworn to you. If you observe the mitzvah of Adonai your God and follow his ways. I know many people may not understand that, but let me turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is in the New Testament. He does command people who obey him to separate himself from people who don't. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse uh, 14. It says, Be ye not unequally yoked together, with this is in the King James Version, with unbelievers, for what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness? Righteousness, Psalm 119, verse 172 states that righteousness is keeping God's commandments, or is his commandments. Righteousness is his commandments. Unrighteousness, of course, is breaking the commandments. And what communion have light with darkness? Light is, of course, someone who is righteous and obeys the commandments. Darkness is someone who doesn't. Verse 15, And what concord or fellowship have Christ with Belial, that which is another name for the devil. Or what part has he with what part have he that believeth with an infidel or someone who is not a believer? Verse sixteen. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? So he's making this um, this a dichotomy here with the temple of God and he's the dichotomy is with idols. So <clears throat> people that are believers that don't believe that the law of Moses has been nailed to the cross, that believe that the law of Moses is still in effect, which is the law of God, then they are considered the temple of God where God dwells within them. And he considers those who don't, who continue to believe that the law of Moses has been nailed to the cross and don't take Christ's words seriously or the, the Bible. Uh, they, they pick and choose which scriptures they want to believe and the ones they don't or don't feel comfortable with, they don't. They're considered idols to God. For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we should be uh, symbolically and figuratively living temples where God can dwell in through his Holy Spirit. Verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and you will be a father unto, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now notice that this scripture is applied is applied to the apostolic scriptures or what is called the New Testament. So that just proves again what was told to Israel is told to anyone that believes that Yeshua is the Messiah and proves it by keeping God's commandments. So I just wanted to point that out to you. And this scripture, uh, I think in Leviticus, I think it's uh, the same scripture here, Leviticus 26 verse 12. This is chapter 26, verse 12. Let's see. Yeah, Leviticus 6, verse 12. Um, that's one of the scriptures that that uh, Paul is quoting from here. It says, And I will walk among you, and you will be, uh, I will be your God, and you should be my people. 
And then uh, what's the other verse that is used here? A. Um, verse 17. Yeah, Isaiah 52, verse 11. Isaiah 52. So Christians also are to separate themselves from people that obviously are obeying God's commandments. 52, starting in verse 11, states, Depart, depart ye, go ye out from hence, touch no unclean thing, go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that, you, that bear the vessels of the Lord. So he's quoting this scripture, Paul, a combination of scriptures. And then in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, he quoted the, Says and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. Says the Lord Almighty. Let's find that scripture in Second Samuel seven. Second Samuel seven verse fourteen. And this is in the this is interesting. This is in the context of um, God's covenant with David. And you know that Christ came from the line of David, and it states right here. Uh, verse 13, I understand the context. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And this is interesting that Paul used this scripture in the context of Christians today. That only proves that we will also play a role, and we will share in the son of David, the ultimate son of David, which is Yeshua, Messiah, Jesus Christ, rulership. And as it says right here, and you, and you, and, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Which is prophetic, but that's, that's referring to. Um, let's turn here to what he said here about us being kings and priests. Revelation chapter one. Verse six. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father to, to be glory and dominion forever and ever. So that for those who overcome in this in this age we would be given the opportunity to be kings and priests under the rulership of God the Father and Jesus Christ. And let me just uh, point out a few things here, some of the promises, some of the rewards that we're going to receive. Revelation 2, verse 27, he says, in verse 26, rather, Revelation 2, verse 26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I receive of my father. Even as I receive of my father. And then Revelation chapter 3 states this, in verse 21 to 22. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So we're going to share in, in Christ's rulership over the earth and the universe, ladies and gentlemen. That's one of the great gifts of obeying. That's one of the great blessings that we will receive. So I've proven to you that what I'm talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 28 applies to believers or Christians today. All right, so getting back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. and the complete Jewish Bible version. So we're going to receive all these blessings if we continue to obey God. In verse 8, 
of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Adonai will order a blessing to be with you in your barns and in everything you undertake. He will bless you in the land Adonai your God has given you. Adonai will establish you as a people separated out for himself. So I went at great length to explain what he means there. As he has sworn to you, if you would observe the mitzvah of Adonai your God and follow his ways. Verse 10, then all the peoples on earth will see that Adonai's name, his presence is with you so that they will be afraid of you. Adonai will give you great abundance of good things, of the fruit of your body, which is your children, the fruit of your livestock, and the fruit of your land, and the land Adonai swore to your ancestors to give you. Adonai will open for you his good treasure, the sky, to give your land its rain at the right seasons, and to bless everything you undertake. You will lend to many nations and not borrow. So this is talking about individual and nationally, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 13, Adonai will make you the head and not the tail, and you will be only above, never below, if you will listen to, observe, and obey the mitzvah or the commandments of Adonai your God. Verse 14, and turn away, and turn, and not turn away, not turn away from any of the words I am ordering you today, neither to, to the right nor to the left, to follow after the gods and servants. So when you don't obey God, it's like idolatry. Verse 15, now here's the bad news. But if you refuse to pay attention to what Adonai your God says and do not observe and obey all his mitzvah or commandments and regulations which I'm giving you today, then all the following curses will be yours in abundance. Verse 16, a curse on you in the city and a curse on you in the countryside, a curse in your grain basket and kneading bowl, and unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, a curse on the fruit of your body or your children, the fruit of your land and the young of the cattle and flocks, a curse on you when you come in and a curse on you when you go out. Adonai will send on you curses, disasters, and frustration in everything you set out to do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of your evil actions in abandoning me. So you're committing an evil action when you abandon God and don't obey him. Verse 21, Adonai will bring on you a plague that will stay with you until he has exterminated you from the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. So in other words, uh, diseases and plagues is a part of the punishment. Verse 22, Adonai will strike you down with wasting diseases, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, drought, blasting winds and mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. The sky over your head will be brass and the earth under you iron, which is describing drought. Verse 24, Adonai will turn the rain, your land knees into powder, and the dust that will fall on you from the sky until you are destroyed. Adonai, your God, will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will advance on them one way and flee before them seven. You will become an object of horror to every kingdom on earth. Your carcasses or bodies, your bodies, will become food for all the birds in the air and the wild animals, and there will be no one to scare them away. Adonai will strike you down with the boils that broke out on the Egyptians, tumors, skin lesions, and itching, all incurable. Adonai will strike you with insanity, blindness, and utter confusion. That's one of the, the penalties when you disobey God. You can't think straight. You think that right is good and good is right. I mean, you think that right is wrong and wrong is right. <laughs> you think that right is wrong and wrong is right. I'm sorry. So Adonai will strike you with insanity, blindness, and utter confusion. And that's a prophecy being fulfilled as I'm speaking. You will grope about at noon like a blind person groping in the dark, unable to find your way. You will be continually oppressed and robbed, and there will be no one to save you. You will get engaged to a woman, but another man will marry her. You will build a house but not live in it. You will plant a vineyard but not use its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you won't eat any of its meat. Your donkey, this is talking about social breakdown and socioeconomics, uh, the, the socioeconomic breakdown of society. Your donkey will be taken away from you by force as you watch, and you won't get it back. Your sheep will be given to your enemies, and there will be no one to help you. 
your sons and daughters will be handed over to another people. You will watch for them long, longly all day, but not see them, and there will be nothing you can do about it. This is describing what's going to happen soon to this country, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 33, a nation unknown to you, and this is talking about martial law, uh, tyranny. Verse 33, a nation unknown to you will eat the fruit of your land and labor. Yes, you will be continually oppressed and crushed until you go crazy from what your eyes have to see. So God says we're going to go crazy as a nation. Verse 35, Adonai will strike you down in the knees and legs with painful and incurable boils. They will spread from the sole of your feet to the crown of your head. Adonai will bring you and your king, whom you have put over you, whom you have put over yourself to a nation you have not known, neither you nor your ancestors, and there you will serve other gods made of wood and stone. And this prophecy has applied to all the tribes of Israel, including the Jews, the modern nation of Israel, up until this time. This prophecy is going to continue on until until um, the whole 12 tribes of Israel repent, as Ezekiel 37 reveals will happen. Verse 37, you will be so devastated as to become a proverb and a laughingstock among all the people to which Adonai will drive you. You will carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and dress them, but neither drink the wine nor gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your territory, but not anoint yourself with the oil, because your olives will fall off unripe. You will father sons and daughters, but they won't belong to you, because they will go into captivity. The bugs will inherit all your trees and the produce of your land. So that's martial law. The, verse 43, the foreigner living with you will rise higher and higher while you sink lower and lower, and that is true. Um, Asians come over here and they make a lot of money. Matter of fact, the Chinese people are holding our debt right now. They're mortgaging our debt, billions of dollars of it. And this is a prophecy that's been fulfilled. Verse 43, the foreigner living with you will rise higher and higher while you sink lower and lower. Asians make just as much as Caucasians. I think they make more now. Verse 44, he will lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He will be the head and you the tail, and that has been fulfilled. We are the world's largest debtor nation, and we owe countries, other countries, $70 trillion right now. That's our total national debt, $70 trillion. That's, a, uh, that's an uncomprehensible amount of money that we owe. Verse 45, all these curses will come on you, pursuing you and overtaking you until you are destroyed because you didn't pay attention to what Adonai your God said, observing his mitzvah and regulations that he gave you. These curses will be on you and your descendants as a sign. So this is a prophecy, verse 46. These curses will be on you and your descendants as a sign and a wonder forever, because you didn't serve Adonai or the Lord your God with joy and gladness. He wants you to serve him in joy and gladness, not oh because you have to. He wants you to, to obey him because you want to. and you, you have to serve him with joy and gladness. He's going to see through that if you don't. And your heart, when you have such an abundance of everything. So when you have everything, you should want to serve. That should encourage you to serve God when you have everything you need. And you should be encouraged to serve him with joy and gladness. Verse 48, Adonai will send your enemy against you, and you will serve him when you are hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he destroys you. And that's the genesis of that. It's happening as I'm speaking. This country is about to fall apart economically. Verse 49, yes, Adonai will bring against you a nation from far away that will swoop down on you from the end of the earth like a vulture, a nation whose language you don't understand, a nation grim in appearance whose people neither respect the old nor pity the young. 
They will devour the offspring of your livestock and the produce of your soil, not soy, but soil, until you have been destroyed. They will leave you without grain, wine, olive oil, or your young cattle and sheep until they have caused you to perish. This happened back in the days of the king of Babylon, but this is going to happen again, ladies and gentlemen. Not exactly the same, but right now we are being oppressed, and the elite, the new world order, is another nation. And they are going to conquer us from within. In verse 52, they will besiege all your towns into your high fortified walls in which you trusted, collapse everywhere in your land, which Adonai gave you. Then because of the severity of the siege and distress that your enemies are inflicting on you, you will eat the offspring of your body. Now this happened back during the days of the first century. Uh, Josephus, a great Jewish historian, recorded what happened when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, what is, what is described here, uh, that they were eating their own children. In verse 53, then because, but this is going to happen again, ladies and gentlemen, if we don't repent. Then because of the severity of the siege and distress that your enemies are inflicting, you will eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your own sons and daughters, whom Adonai, your God, has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will be without pity for his brother, his beloved wife, or his surviving children, to the degree that he will refuse to share any of them the flesh of his children whom he is eating. Because if he did, he would have nothing left for himself. So they're going to be so selfish and insane here, because it does explain that we're going to go crazy because we're not obeying him. It's in the severity of the siege and distress your enemies are inflicting on you in all your towns. Verse 56, the most delicate and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and delicate that she wouldn't think of touching the sole of her foot to the ground, will so begrudge her own beloved husband, son, and daughter that she will secretly eat the afterbirth that comes out of her and even her own children as she bears. And this is horrible, ladies and gentlemen. This is what happens when you don't obey God. So desperately hungry will she be in the severity of the siege and distress your enemies are inflicting on you in your towns. If you will not observe and obey all the words of this Torah that are written in this book so that you will fear this glorious and awesome name, Adonai your God. Verse 59, then Adonai will strike down you and your descendants with extraordinary plagues and severe sickness that go on and on. He will bring back upon you all the diseases the Egyptians had which you were in dread of, and they will cling to you. Not only that, but Adonai will bring upon you all the sicknesses and plagues that are not written in this book of Torah, O law, until you are destroyed. You will be left few in number, whereas you were once as numerous as the stars in the sky, because you did not pay attention to the voice of Adonai your God. Thus it will come upon, thus it will come about that just as Adonai took joy in seeking to do you good and increase your numbers, so Adonai will take joy in causing you to perish and be destroyed and you will be plucked off the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth, which has already happened, the, ten, the twelve tribes of Israel have been scattered all over the place. And there you will serve other gods made of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those these nations you will not find repulse, and there will be no rest for the sole of your foot. Rather, Adonai will give you their anguish of heart, dimness of eyes, and apathy of spirit. Your life will hang in doubt before you. You will be afraid night and day and have no assurance that you will stay alive. In the morning you will say, oh, how I wish it were evening. And in the evening you will say, oh, how I wish it were morning. Because of the fear overwhelming your heart and the sights your eyes will see. Finally, Adonai will bring you back in ships to Egypt. This has already occurred back in the first century. Uh, it will perhaps occur again. The place of which I said to you, you will never see it again. And there you will try to sell yourselves as slaves to your enemies, but no one will buy you. So that's what's in store for us in the future, ladies and gentlemen, if we just, if we continue to be stubborn collectively as a people. As I've explained earlier, 
when you see the word Israel in the Bible, it's referring to America. It's referring to the British Commonwealth of Nations, the countries in Northwestern Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Geographically, that's where the most Bibles are distributed. Of course, it's also referring to the little nation of Israel in the Middle East, all the 12 tribes of Israel, which the Jews are a part of, and Americans and, and Britons and so forth. So anyway, I just wanted to explain that to you. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 19. It states, God states this, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, or you and your seed may live. Verse 20, that you may love the Lord thy God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cleave unto him. That's what we need to be cleaving to, much more than we cleave to our husband, or uh, in, in the husband's case, our wives. We need to cleave to him, for he is our lives and the length of our days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto his fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. So, yeah, sure, we, we, we have a choice, but we must choose life, not death. And everything will go well for us. And Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a prophecy for the end times. And let's start here in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Starting in verse 24. Now this is a prophecy of our peoples. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse... Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 24. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, says, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark on the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for witness against thee. Verse 27. Here we go with the concept of our peoples. And when I say our peoples, I'm not just talking about the Jews. I'm also talking about Americans and Britons, South African folks, uh, Australians, New Zealanders, and, and those people in Northwestern Europe and anyone else that claims that they're a believer of Christ. Verse 27 says, For I know thy rebellion. Now, what's a witness against them? The law of God, the law of Moses is against them. Verse 27, For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, you have been rebellious against the Lord, and how much more after my death. So he's saying that even when Moses was there, even when Moses was there, they were rebellious. And he said they're going to even be more rebellious after his death. And that's a prophecy that's been fulfilled and still being fulfilled as I'm speaking. Verse 28, Gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days or the, or the days of the Messiah. That's what that means, the 21st century. Because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. And in verse 30, And Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of the song until they were ended. And I suggest you study chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. It is a prophecy that definitely applies to today as well as back then. It's a prophecy. And remember, Moses was a prophet. Let's turn to Psalm. Psalm 19. 
Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, it states, The law of the Torah of God, let me read this in there. I just don't like that word law. It's not a full description of what that word should be. It should mean Torah or Torah, the teachings of God. 19. There we go. In the complete Jewish Bible version, the Torah of Adonai is perfect. Restoring the inner person. The instruction of Adonai is sure. Making wise the thoughtless. So, he's even saying that if you have a problem thinking, if you have a, a, a tough time understanding something, by reading the words of God, it will even make the, uh, make, it makes the thoughtless wise. It, it helps you to start learning how to really think. Verse 8 of Psalm 19. The precepts of Adonai of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The mitzvah of the commandments of Adonai is pure, enlightening the eyes. Or the commandment of Adonai is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 9 of um, Psalm 19. The fear of Adonai is clean, enduring forever. The rulings of Adonai are true. They are righteous altogether. And then verse 10 is a key scripture. More desirable than gold, much... The words of God should be more desirable than gold, than much fine gold, also sweeter than honey or drippings from the honeycomb. That is the way everyone should envision and desire to keep God's words. And if you don't desire to keep God's words that way, you have some work to do to be able to get to that point. So I just wanted to explain that, and, and this applies not only to wives but also to anyone, that we all must take God's words seriously and we must desire them above the sweetest honey, and above the, the, most, the finest gold. If we can do that, we will have a, a, an outstanding relationship with the eternal God. Okay, so let's, let's look at some apocrypha scriptures or writings. And the reason why I want to do that, as I've explained a few times in this program, that the apocrypha writings are Jewish writings that helps us understand the background of the Bible and even helps us understand the scriptures of the Bible better. So, uh, in Sirach, and in most cases, in some cases, just like in the King James Version, you have some mistranslations or some some things that uh, need to be interpreted correctly based on uh, the uh, original Hebrew, but the fact that the Apocrypha is not considered scripture, we have to be careful of which writings we use as well. But anyway... Uh, in Ecclesiasticus or Sirach, S-I-R-A-C-H, uh, chapter 26, verse 24, it states this. It says, A shameless woman constantly acts disgracefully, but a modest daughter will even be embarrassed before her husband. So it says, A shameless woman constantly acts disgracefully, but a modest daughter will even be embarrassed before her husband. So this is in the context, of course, of a shameless woman constantly acting disgracefully. So that's that's what I wanted to point out there. And then verse 25 says, A headstrong wife is regarded as a dog. <laughs> now this is out of the Jewish writings here, so I, I, I'm not saying this. It, just says, it says that a headstrong wife is regarded as a dog, and we all know what word that is used uh, sometimes to talk about a woman. Well, 
obviously the concept of that was was among the Jews even back back uh, in the uh, in the latter half of the uh, close of, of the uh, century of the uh, actually at the beginning of the first century. A headstrong wife is regarded. Okay, so I'm just <laughs> says a headstrong wife. And you know what a headstrong wife is? They want to rule. They they want to be in control. They don't want to do what they husband tell them to do. A headstrong wife is regarded as a dog, but one who has a sense of shame will fear the Lord. Verse 26, a wife honoring her husband will seem wise to all, but if she dishonors him in her pride, she will be known to all as ungodly. And it says, happy is the husband of a good wife, for the number of his years will be doubled. Okay, so that that's a little wisdom from the Apocrypha there. So, you wives that have a difficult time obeying your husbands. Following your husband's lead, I suggest you start obeying your husbands if you desire for God to bless your marriage and your life. After I've quoted Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30, and, and other uh, Deuteronomy 31 about all of these things applying to even us today, and, and then, uh, of course, a little wisdom from the Apocrypha, there should be no doubt in your mind, no doubt in your mind, wives, that you must start obeying your husbands if you desire for God to bless you, your marriage, and your life. The Bible does not state that your husband has to be rich and perfect for you to obey him. If your husband is doing the best that he can, and I, the condition if, I'm using that if, underscore that, if, if your husband is doing the best that he can to provide food, clothes, and shelter for you and your children if you have children, then he is worthy of your respect, honor, and obedience toward him. First, let's look at Esther. Esther. Let's turn to Esther. Let me find Esther here. After Nehemiah in the King James Version. Esther, right here, it's in the context of the queen disobeying uh, the king, and it states here in verse 20, and this is definitely biblically uh, relevant here. And Esther 1, verse 20, and when the king's decree which he shall make, verse 20 of Esther chapter 1, and when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great. All the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. So great and small husbands deserve the honor. It's not just for the great husbands, but also the small husbands um, should, should get honor from their wives and respect. And then in verse 22, For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his house. In other words, he's the final decision maker, he's the boss. And that it should be published according to the language of every people. So that was inspired by God, obviously. And 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, tells us that it's the man's responsibility to take care and provide for his family. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8 but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So this is referring to a man, not a woman. But if any provide not for his own, 
and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So that's the responsibility despite all of, all the secular information that I read saying that uh, it's no longer necessary for the man to be the breadwinner and all that. That's not true. God requires for the man to be the breadwinner. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6, it states here, and I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. says, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Now true religion does bring great riches. Now true religion does bring great riches, but only to those who are content with what they have. Now that's a key scripture. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now true religion does bring great riches, but only to those who are content with what they have. Verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. So if we have food and clothing... We will be satisfied with these. So we're supposed to be, biblically, satisfied with just food and clothing. But I know in America, especially as spoiled as we are, we are not just satisfied with food and clothing. We want to get all kinds of things along with that, which is nothing wrong with that if we focus on the priorities first. But it says, so if we have food and clothing, we, will be sat we should be satisfied with these. It says, furthermore, those whose goal is to be rich fall into temptation they get trapped in many foolish, many foolish and hurtful ambitions, which plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all the evils. Because of this craving, some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves to the heart with many pains. But you, as a man of God or a woman of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So those are the things that we need to focus on, not getting rich. And wives, uh, you shouldn't desire for your husband to get rich so you can consume it upon his own lust and your lust. Instead, if you do desire for him to be rich, it should be to help other people. As the rest of this, uh, verse 17, it states, charge them that are rich in this world, in First Timothy chapter 6, that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things and enjoy, verse 18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works. That's what we should be rich in. If we're rich, we're going to be busy uh, helping other people, ready to distribute or share, willing to communicate. So that that's if you desire to be rich, that's the way you should be rich according to God's eyes, willing to want to help people, not store it up in bars like the rich fool back in uh, Luke chapter 12. Anyway, Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 8. It says, Remove far from me vanity and lies, neither give me... Proverbs 30, verse 8. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that's convenient for me. In the same context of 1 Timothy that I just quoted, chapter 6. Let not I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and take the name of my God in vain. So our desire should not be to be rich. That should mean our, our primary desire. And if it is, that desire should be to help people, to help people, not, not to help yourself and, and forget about everyone else. Okay, so I just wanted to point that out. Now we're going to get really into some things that really need to be addressed here, but I'm still addressing this issue with 
I can't be forced to obey my husband and 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 uh, some women they have excuses uh uh my my husband's not kind with his words toward me so I don't have to obey him and they have all these other excuses um, to say that they shouldn't obey their husband. All right, so first of all, let's address some issues here about that. First Peter, Peter chapter 3. I don't know why I have the scripture here this so early. Let me see. First Peter 3. Okay, I'm going to address these, issues, these scriptures later on today. First Peter chapter three again. Yeah, I know I'm on the reason why I quoted it here. All right, First Peter chapter three. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version again. First Peter chapter three, starting in verse three. Okay, pay attention to this, women and wives. First Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Your beauty should not consist in externals such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. And unfortunately, society has brainwashed women to think that that's what beauty should consist of. But that's not the way God looks at beauty as far as a woman is concerned. First Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Your beauty should not consist in externals such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. Rather, let it be the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's the way God envisions true beauty out of a real woman and a wife, is having the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle, gentle and quiet spirit. That is a real woman, a woman that is quiet and humble and meek and, and has a gentle and quiet spirit, not a boisterous woman that wants to be like a man. In God's sight, this is of great value. He doesn't say in God's sight, being trying to act like a man is of great value. He doesn't say that. Verse 5, this is how the holy men... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. First Peter chapter 3, verse 5, this is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves and submit to their husbands. So this is how you submit to your husband, uh, women, and uses Sarah as an example. Verse 6, of First Peter chapter 3. The way Sarah obeyed Abraham, honoring him as her Lord or Master, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. So that's a very important scripture to understand wise about that. Now let's turn to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 9. To continue on with this concept on how God, not some other person, views what a real woman is and how she should be. First Timothy chapter two, starting uh, in verse nine, it says, "Likewise, the women when they pray." First Timothy chapter two verse nine, the complete Jewish Bible version. Likewise, the women when they pray should be dressed modestly and sensibly. Sensibly, okay? They should be dressed modestly and sensibly in respectable attire, not with elaborate hairstyles and gold jewelry or pearls or expensive clothes. That's not that's not beauty to God. I mean, it's okay to dress nice, but that's not the the, the thing that God really wants to focus on 
in terms of a beauty, the beauty, the beauty of a woman. The beauty of a woman is so much more than that. Verse ten. Rather, they should adorn themselves with what is appropriate for women who claim, who claim, and I want to underscore, uh, underscore that claim to be worshiping God, namely good deeds. That's what a woman should be clothing themselves with. Good deeds. They, they should be wanting to serve their husband and mankind. That's what you should be clothing yourself with primarily. And then focus on the clothes. And then verse 11, let a woman learn in peace, fully submitted. And then, of course, the rest of it, that a woman shouldn't be an authority over a man and all that. Of course, the exceptions uh, uh, with a mother over her children and sons and all that. And I'm going to get into the situation with Deborah today. I hope I should be able to. But anyway, just wanted to explain that. Now, if you continue to consistently disobey your husband, wives, then a spirit of rebellion will negatively affect your marriage. So let's turn to First Samuel, First Samuel chapter fifteen. First Samuel chapter fifteen. First Samuel chapter fifteen, starting in verse uh, twenty-two. So First Samuel chapter fifteen, verse twenty-two. Samuel said, does the Lord take as much pleasure, and this is complete Jewish Bible version, does the Lord take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice and heeding orders than the fat of rams. Verse 23, for rebellion is like the sin of sorcery. Rebellion is equivalent or is like the sin of sorcery. Again, let me underscore this. For rebellion is like the sin of sorcery, stubbornness like the crime of idolatry. So when you don't obey, this applies to to women as just as, as much as it applies to men. So when you rebel, it's like the sin of sorcery. Stubbornness is like the crime of idolatry. So when you sin, you're you're dabbling in the occult basically, and then when you are stubborn, you it's like the crime of idolatry. Both are focused on the, on the demonic world. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he too has rejected you as king. Verse 24. Shual said to, to Samuel, that's, uh, that's uh, uh, the Hebrew name for Saul, I have sinned, I violated the order of Adonai and your words too because I was afraid of the people and listen to what they said. And see, we can't be afraid of people that don't know what they're talking about and, and don't understand God. We have to do what God tells us to do. And then unfortunately King Saul did not understand that. Verse 25. Now please pardon my sin and come back with me so that I can worship Adonai. But see, he didn't have a real attitude of repentance, it looks like here. And verse 26 says, but Samuel said to, to Saul, I will not go back with you because you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So, you know, here we go with him not obeying and, and God says, hey, you have rejected the Lord. You have rejected the Lord, you know, and and then right here, let's look at the context here. 
In verse 18 of Samuel, chapter 15, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, Go and completely destroy Amalek. Those sinners keep making war on them until they have been exterminated. Now, did, did he do what he told him? Did, did Saul, King Saul do exactly what God told him to do? No, he didn't. Verse 19, Why did you seize the spoil instead of paying attention to what the Lord said? From the Lord's viewpoint, you have done an evil thing. So this is from the Lord's viewpoint. We, we can't focus on our viewpoint. We have to focus on what the Lord's viewpoint is. And verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I did too pay attention to what the Lord said. Now, he's lying. He's deceiving himself. I, I experience this a lot. <laughs> People deceiving themselves. I did too pay attention to what the Lord said. And I carried out the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed Amalek. But the people took some of the spoil and the best of the sheep and the cattle set aside for destruction and sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then, of course, he quotes this, and, and Samuel tried to explain to him, of course, Saul was justifying that he did obey God when he didn't. God did not tell him to take up the spoil. But Saul tried to make it seem like it was okay because he was given sacrifices and offerings to God, and God said, no, I want you to do exactly what I told you. Okay, and this can be applicable toward a wife obeying her husband. When her, when her husband tells her to do something, that her husband expects her, expect the wife to do exactly what the husband tells her, not to make excuses for not doing it, like Saul has done here. So, um, and then in verse 18 again, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and told you to go and completely destroy Amalek, those sinners keeping war on them until they have been exterminated. Why did you seize the spoil instead of paying attention to what the Lord said? From the Lord's viewpoint, you have done an evil thing. See, so that I, I'm just giving you this example to, to see how we've all been guilty of this, how we deceive ourselves and, and the thinking that we're right when we're wrong. Okay, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6, to, to understand this sorcery part of this here. says, the person who turns to spirit mediums and sorcerers to go fornicating after them, I will set myself against them and cut them off from the people. So I'm just quoting that scripture to help you understand that when you rebel, you, you're opening up the dimension of demons in your life, and you don't want that. Uh, Genesis chapter, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. And in the complete Jewish Bible version. And it is perfectly evident what the old nature does. It expresses itself in sexual immorality, impurity, and indecency. Verse 20, involvement with the occult and with drugs and feuding, fighting, becoming jealous and getting angry, and selfish ambition, factionism, intrigue, envy, and drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you now, as I have warned you before, those who do such things will have no share in the kingdom of God. And part of those things that if you don't repent of wives and also husbands, uh, uh, you can't get into idolatry, and you can't be involved with the occult. And one of the things, if you continue to disobey God, whether you realize it or not, you're allowing yourself to be deceived and tricked by the devil and influenced to do wrong by the devil. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 in the complete Jewish Bible version. I'm going to read this. Actually, I'm going to read this in the King James Version. It says, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
So if you disobey God, you allow the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil, to work in you to do evil. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And what he does, he, he turns our, our buttons on, our lust buttons on, and, and we start to desire the lust of the flesh. And we want to fulfill the desires of the lust of the flesh. And we become the children of wrath. And you don't want to, you don't want to do that. The only way to not become the children of wrath is to obey God, ladies and gentlemen. Let's turn to Colossians 3, verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5. Well, first, let's, let's go to, I love when it, the scripture is outstanding. It really is in terms of how it reveals how we should think about God. Colossians 3, verse 1 in the complete Jewish Bible version. So if you were raised along with the Messiah, if, that's a condition again, if you were raised along with the Messiah, then seek the things above where the Messiah is sitting at the right hand of God. Focus your minds on the things above, not on things here on earth. That is the problem with most people. They focus too much on these things on the earth, but they don't focus on the things above. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah and God. When the Messiah, who is our life, appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death the earthly parts of your nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is a form of idolatry. So being greedy, wanting things that you don't need at the time and, and all that, and just wanting more, 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 is a form of idolatry as well. It's all linked to rebellion. Verse 6, For it is because of these things that God's anger is coming on those who disobey him. So you don't want his anger to come at you. All right. So, sadly, I do know that a significant amount of women obey their bosses at work better than they obey their husbands at home, which is ridiculous. Uh, my husband is not kind with his words toward me, so I don't have to obey him. So this is another popular objection I get all the time. Uh, Psalm 141, verse 5. Let's turn to that. Psalm, 41, uh, Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous smite me. Now, this is King David here. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. And that's another way that the righteous is kind, ladies and gentlemen, by sometimes, in a forceful way, correcting someone who he's ruling over because he loves them. I know many, especially women, and perhaps especially men in some cases, don't look at uh, correction from a righteous person as being kind, but it is, according to the Word of God. Psalm 141, verse 5. And let him reprove me. Uh, he had David had an excellent attitude here. Let him reprove me. So he wanted to be corrected. It shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. All right. So we should have the we should want to be corrected, ladies and gentlemen. I, I know about you, but if I'm in error, I want to be corrected. I don't want to be going around in my life not knowing something that I should know. And I did, as I explained to you last week, that's a part of the fear of God is instruction and wisdom. Being having the willingness to want to be corrected and instructed. Leviticus chapter nineteen, starting in verse seventeen. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, 
Thou shalt any wise... Let me read this in the complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake here. Leviticus chapter 19. Starting in verse 7. If any... Oh, wait a minute. No, that's 7. Um, yeah, verse 17. Leviticus 19, verse 17, a complete Jewish Bible version. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you won't carry sin because of him. Don't take vengeance on or bear a grudge against any of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, in the context of loving your neighbor as yourself is correction. And then, Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Revelation 3, verse 19. says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten or punish. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So God wants you to, to really desire his words and his law like, like you would honey or the finest gold. That's what being zealous is, zealous is all about. Zealous is all about. Be zealous, therefore, and repent or change. That's what repent means. It's to change your mind, to change. Okay. And another objection that a, a wife could have is, my husband's not perfect, so I don't have to obey him. Well, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. You wives that have difficulty obeying your husbands, are your bosses at work perfect? Again, I'm going to underscore this and repeat it. Are your bosses at work perfect? Now, you know that they are not. Of course not. Yet you have no problem obeying them despite their imperfections. Husbands that don't speak kindly to their wives can be difficult to obey. I understand that. And if it is in an extreme situation where he is verbally abusing you every second of the day, then wives don't have to put up with that type of abuse and nonsense. However, if your husband is occasionally saying something that is not kind or does not say unkind things to you every second of the day or most of the day, in other words, he's just, this is an extreme situation where this, your husband is just constantly putting you down, calling you names all day, and just, you know, that's something that, of course, you shouldn't tolerate. And if he's not doing that, then God commands you to still obey your husband as long as it does not violate Torah. Of course, if your husband commits adultery, you definitely have grounds for divorce. Just like, the, unfortunately, for Tiger and his wife, Ellen, that situation, yeah, uh, Ellen definitely has rights for divorce. Yet, if he shows that he is seriously sorry and shows proof of change or repentance, then you should consider giving him another chance. You should consider giving him another chance. Just like God figuratively is giving, uh, he, he, he states, um, and let me see if I can find the scripture here. Surprise, I didn't. Let me find it here. It's in the Old Testament somewhere. Jeremiah 3, verse 14 states, Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So that, that's God's example. Uh, the analogy also covers the congregation of Israel, which is the church. Uh, same concept in the, in the New Testament, and that's not a Bible study in itself, but the nation of Israel was God's wife, and of course God or Yeshua in his pre-existing form was the husband. 
and he's he's talking here through Jer the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3, verse 14, Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So even even though his his wife, which was the congregation of Israel, which today is, of course, the church along with the congregation of Israel, uh, he, he even to this day is telling them to, to come back to them, to, to come back to repent. So he So he's married to them, but he's separated from them. So I just wanted to point that out to you. So we should do all we can to to avoid a complete divorce. Because God still today desires to be married to his congregation, which consists of the twelve tribes of Israel and of course the people that believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. First uh, Peter chapter two. Now we're going to really get into some deep thought here and deep application of how wives can Submit to husbands that act like beanheads, basically. Okay, uh, so you're gonna definitely. I hope you anyway like this part of it, the Bible study. Uh, you know, I, I've acted like beanheads and, and continue to act like a beanhead to my wife. Sometimes I'm, I'm gonna admit that. And other husbands, if they want to be totally honest with themselves, act like a bunch of beanheads at times. But how can a wife deal with the beanhead? Well, let me let me read to you what God commands a wife to do. First uh, Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse eighteen. How much time I have left here? Fifty minutes should be enough time. Okay. First Peter chapter two starting in verse 18. Let me complete Jewish Bible version. Household servant. Now, of course, a, a wife is a household servant, so this applies to her, and you're going to see that it applies uh, to her in a minute here. First Peter 2, verse 18. House, household servants, submit yourself to your masters, and of course we know the master because Sarah called Abraham her lord, so... The husband is the master of the wife. Household service, submit yourself to your master, showing them full respect, and not only those who are kind and considerate. So not only those who are kind and considerate. Let me repeat this to you wives again. Not only to those who are kind and considerate, but also those who are harsh. So you'll see in a minute that this also applies to a wife. Verse 19, for it is... A grace when someone, because he is mindful of God, bears up under the pain of undeserved punishment. For it is a grace when someone, or it is favor, when someone, because he is mindful of God, bears up under the pain of undeserved punishment. So God is telling you that you are mindful of him when you bear up under the pain of undeserved punishment. Verse 20. For what credit is there in bearing up under a beating that you deserve for doing something wrong? But if you bear up under punishment, even though you have done what is right, God looks on it with favor. That's what your scriptures say. You have a problem with that, wives? You argue with your husbands. Uh, argue with <laughs> God, the husband about it, the ultimate husband about it. Okay. I'm just I'm just telling you what he's saying here. I'm just reading his words. Verse 21. Indeed, that is what you were called to do. He's saying that's what you were called to do, <laughs> because the Messiah too suffered. 
on your behalf, leaving an example so that you should follow in his steps. It's important not to take certain scriptures out of context. This is what it's talking about, for us to suffer just like the Messiah suffered. Uh, leaving an example so that you should follow his steps of suffering. Verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found on his lips. Verse 23, when he was insulted, he didn't retaliate with insults. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but handed them over to him who judges justly. And that's what a wife has to do when she's dealing with a harsh husband, when he's acting like a nut uh, occasionally. Now, of course, if it's a situation where it's just constant brain beating, then you, you, you need to leave that person because that person is going to break you down and, and cause you to be in the hospital. But if it's an occasional thing and, and, and it's not all day and it's not constant throughout the day, then God commands you to deal with it. I know it's hard, but he states that uh, you will be rewarded for that. Verse 22, when he was insulted, he didn't retaliate with insults. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but handed them over to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on a stake so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. Verse 25, for you used to be like sheep gone astray, but you have turned to the shepherd who watches over you. Now, the key scripture here is starting in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, wives, let me underscore, in the same way, wives, submit to your husbands. So there should be no doubt that this applies to wives as well. So that even if some of them do not believe the word, they'll be won over by your conduct without you saying anything. And unfortunately, when wives get into a, a heated argument or disagreement where they're raising their voice with their husband, that's not doing it. That's, that's not doing it the way God wants it to be done. That's not how you're going to correct your husband. You're going to correct them by being as it states here in verse 2, as they see your respectful and pure behavior, that's how they're going to be more easily corrected, not by you shouting, having a shouting match with your husband. Verse 3 says, Your beauty should not consist in external such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. Rather, let it be the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. In God's sight, this is of great value. This is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves and submit to their husbands. The way Sarah obeyed Abraham or Abraham, honoring him as her Lord or Master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. And then, of course, we are, as husbands, likewise, we need to conduct our married lives with understanding. We should put up with our wives, too, when they get out of hand, too. But this Bible study is for the women. I already covered the men and what they need to do. So it's only fair that I cover what the women need to do. All right, now, so I read that. Oh, let me read the rest of it here. First Peter 3. Uh, how much time I have left here? 45 minutes, okay. First Peter 3, continuing the rest of this. All right, let's read what the husbands will. Okay, so in verse 7, you husbands likewise conduct your married lives with understanding. Although your wife may be weaker physically... You should respect her as a fellow heir of the gift of life. If you don't, your prayers will be blocked, and they will be blocked, man, if you don't do that. Now, your wife is only weaker physically. She's certainly not weaker mentally, okay? And I know from a fact my wife can definitely give me some challenges. So so your, your wife's definitely only weak, weaker physically. 
don't you ever think that they can't understand you. They can't understand you, and uh, if you don't rule properly, they will challenge you. Verse 8, finally, all of you be one in mind and feeling. So it's telling husbands and wives and, and the community of believers. Finally, all of you, in verse 8, be one, be one in mind and feeling. Love as brothers and be compassionate and humble-minded, not repaying evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary with blessing. For it is to this that you have been called that you may receive a blessing. God wants us to receive blessings, not cursings. Verse 10, For whoever wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit or trickery. Verse 11, Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and chase after. That's what we need to be chasing. Peace. What is peace? Psalm 119, verse 165. Let's go back there again. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse 165. God gives us a definition of peace. That's something to do with his law. His Torah. says, those who love your Torah have great peace. Nothing makes them stumble. So those, and this is in the complete Jewish Bible version, those who love your Torah have great peace. So you have to love the Torah to have peace. If you don't love the Torah, if you don't want to keep it, the commandments of God, you're not going to have peace. And you're going to stumble. And it says right here, when you do love the Torah, when you, when you um, love it more than honey, when you love it more than money, when you love it more than money, and when you love it more than honey, that rhymes. But anyway, if you can do that, you'll have peace and nothing will make you stumble. You, in other words, you'll be able to overcome your problems. Psalm 119, verse 166, I hope for your deliverance, the Lord, uh, Lord. I obey your mitzvah. So obeying the commandments, that has something to do with deliverance or salvation. So that's what your Bible says. That peace, which is keeping the commandments, does for anyone that make a difference what type of human race you are. All right. So getting back to, uh, let me look at something here. All right, so let's getting back to scripture here back in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 verse, uh, I think I left off at 10. Yeah, let me just repeat verse 10 in the complete Jewish Bible version. For whoever wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit or trickery. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and chase after it. For the Lord or Adonai keeps his eyes on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. So he's open to the prayers of the righteous, those who keep the commandments. But the face of Adonai is against those who do evil things. For who will hurt you if you become zealots for what is good? But even if you do suffer for being righteous, you are blessed. Moreover, don't fear what they fear or be disturbed. But treat the Messiah as holy, as Lord in your hearts, while remaining always ready to give a re reason answer to anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you, yet with humility and fear. 
keeping your conscience clear so that when you are spoken against, those who abuse the good behavior flowing from your union with the Messiah may be put to shame. That applies to husbands that, that don't treat their wives properly. Okay, so I hope you wives have a deeper understanding of that. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, this is something that I think we all tend to forget, what Christ commanded us all to do. Matthew 5, verse 44. It says, but I tell you, and this is a complete Jewish Bible version, but I tell you, love your enemies. Sometimes your husband can become your enemy. He can not treat you right, but the Bible tells you to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us, and we're supposed to love your enemy. I know that's hard, but it can be possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in Acts 5, verse 32, it's revealed that God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Let me drink some water. I'll be right back. Okay. So anyway, in verse 44 of Matthew chapter 5, But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45. Then you will become children of your Father in heaven. So God is, is, is correlating this with loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And if you do that, then you will become children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun shine on the good and bad people alike, and he sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Verse 46 of Matthew chapter 5. What reward do you get if you love only those who love you? And this is the, the Master's words here. I'm just repeating what he's saying in verse 46. What reward do you get? What reward do you get if you love only those who love you? Why, even tax collectors do that. Verse 47, and if you are friendly only to those, if you are friendly only to your friends, are you doing anything out of the ordinary? Even the goyim or the Gentiles do that. So God wants us to be extraordinary. He wants us to be friendly, not only to our friends, but to our enemies. Verse 48, therefore be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect or complete. And that's what he commands us, and this can be applicable toward any type of relationship. Definitely a marriage, when the husband gets out of hand, or when the wife gets out of hand. Of course, there's extenuating circumstances when abuse, whether it's mental or physical, is to the point of where it's affecting you health-wise. You must... Uh, temporarily, for sure, and perhaps permanently separate from that individual. But if it's occasional, this or that, or if it's not all day constant bickering and arguing just with no breaks and just constant over and over again, that is obviously abuse, and you, you have to make you have to use your common sense. But if it's not that situation, then God commands you to deal with it, just like He deals with our imperfections, just like He loves people that don't love Him, just like He cares about people that don't, don't love him. Just like he provides for people that don't love him, that hates him. He does that. It says in, in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 5, Then you will become children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun shine on good and bad people alike. And he sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And in verse 46, he states, What reward do you get if you love only those who love you? Why, even tax collectors do that. In verse 47, and if you are friendly only to your friends, are you doing anything out of the ordinary? Even the going do that. He wants us to do things extraordinary. And for us to do things extraordinary, we must study the Bible and we must obey him. 
And if we obey him, we will be able to do extraordinary things. Acts 5, verse 32 states that he gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 12 states this. Yes, indeed. This is the complete Jewish Bible version. I tell you that whoever trusts in me will also do the works I do. That's what he says. Indeed, he will do greater ones because I am going to the Father. So that's what he states. Now, do you believe that? I certainly believe it. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. Let's focus on that in this scripture again. 1 Peter 3, verse 6. Now, it says, The way Sarah obeyed Abraham, honoring him as her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. Now, there's an excellent commentary by Mr. Gill, John Gill. Uh, if I can find it here. States here. Says the wife ought to take care of the family, to educate her children. To okay, this is the responsibilities of a wife, and I'm going to back this up by scripture too. Says the wife ought to take care of the family, so that's one of the major responsibilities of the wife to take care of the family, to educate her children, to serve and minister to her husband in all things, calling him her own lord, which is what we learn from the example of Sarah, who called Abraham her lord, saying, "My lord is old." So let me repeat and underscore this. This is important. This is the responsibilities of the wife. The wife ought to take care of the family, to educate her children, to serve and minister to her husband in all things, calling him her Lord or Master, which is what we learn from the example of Sarah, who called Abraham her Lord, saying, My Lord is old. This is from John Gill Bible Commentary, uh, the commentary on uh, verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 3, which is backed up by Titus chapter 2. Let's turn there. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. says, Likewise, tell the older women to behave the way people leading a holy life should. They shouldn't be slanderers or slaves or servants to excessive drinking. They should teach what is good. So a woman should teach, but who do they teach? Well, we're about to find out here in verse 4. Thus training the younger women to love their husbands and children. Verse 5, to be self-controlled and pure, to take good care of their homes and submit to their husbands. In this way, God's message will not be brought into disgrace. So, when a woman doesn't obey her husband, it states that God's message will not be brought into disgrace. If she doesn't teach her children, God's message is brought into disgrace. If she's not self-controlled and pure, if she's not self-controlled and pure, and if she doesn't take good care of her home, then God's message will be brought into disgrace. And women, I know you don't want to do that. So I just wanted to point that out. Now, we have a biblical example of a husband rebuking his wife or correcting his wife. 
And this is found in Job. Job was one of the most righteous people on the earth, right? Well, he had to rebuke his wife because his wife said something ridiculous and stupid. Uh, it's over here uh, in Job chapter 2. says right here uh, in verse 7 and the adversary uh, that's one of the names of the devil the adversary um, I'm reading this in complete Jewish Bible version Job 2 verse 7 then the adversary went out from the presence of Adonai and struck Job down with horrible inf infected sores from the sole of his feet foot to the crown of his head verse 8 he took a piece of a broken pot to scratch himself and sat down in a pile of ashes and verse 9 his wife asked him why do you still hold on to your integrity curse God and die so this woman went nuts. His wife actually told Job to curse God and die. <laughs> and this is how he rebuked her, verse 10. But he answered her, you're talking like a low-class woman. Are we to receive the good at God's hands but reject the bad? Now, notice this, because it's possible to correct your wife and not sin. And all this, Job did not say one sinful word, okay? So... It's possible to correct your wife like this. It's a little stern, but hey, she deserved it. She told Job to curse God and die. <laughs> That's crazy, okay? And in verse 10, he answered and said, You're talking like a low-class woman, which I totally agree. Are we to receive the good of God's hands but reject the bad? And all this, Job did not say one sinful word for, for, for those women who say it is not right for a husband to correct uh, his wife then by God's word, by the authority of God's word, I say nay to that. You're wrong. Okay. Because sometimes women, and men too, but women too, they get out of hand and say crazy stuff. All right, now let's get to righteous women here. Let's get some examples of righteous women in the Bible. And let's finally address this issue with Deborah, the judge of Israel, who was a woman. Okay, let's get to that. All right, so Deuteronomy, first of all, let's understand that God did not state, and it's not in his law for women to be in the military. Okay, so let's, let's get that out the way right now, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. All right, starting in verse 1, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just going to just read enough to prove to you that women are not in the picture here as far as being in the military. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. When thou goest out to battle against thy enemies and see horses and chairs and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be when you are come near unto the battle that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people. All right, so that's the context. Let's look down here. And verse 5. It says, And an officer shall speak unto the people, saying, What man, and doesn't say woman, what man is there that hath built a new house and have not dedicated it? Let him go over and turn to his house, that not he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Verse 6, Or what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and have not eaten of it? Let him also go over and turn into his house, that not he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there that has bethought a wife or is engaged to, to marry a woman, and hath not taken her? Let him go and return into his house, that not he die in the battle, and another man take her. Verse 8, And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, that not his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. 
And it shall be when the officers have made an end of the speaking unto the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. All right, so, uh, and it states here, the only thing it says about a woman, it says, but the woman and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city and all the spoils shall thou take unto thyself. So there's no, if you can just study this here, there's no indication that God states that a woman fights in the army. That's a man's job. So I just want to point that out. Now, let's get to Deborah. Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. So Judges chapter 4. So to give us a background of what the environment that Deborah and all the other judges were in, uh, as I've explained to you in the Bible study, we have a characteristic of being rebellious. And and right here in Judges 2, verse 11, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam, or Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God, and this is in Judges 2, verse 11, verse 12, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were around about them, as they do today, and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. And they turned quickly, not, not slowly, but quickly, out of the way which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. In verse 18, And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the land of their enemies all the days of the judge. For we repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed him and vexed him. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers and following other gods that served them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their doings nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because that this people have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I will also not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died, that through them I may prove Israel, test Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. So he allowed the nations to be in, as he's allowing uh, temptation today, to test us all whether or not we will obey him or not. And verse 22 again, that through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. So that is the, the context of 
Deborah here. So let's look at Deborah, the one sole judge of Israel, okay? And we, will, we can understand why God allowed her to be a judge. So I'm going to read this in the, in the basic Bible version here for clarity's sake here. So Judges, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And the children of Israel again did evil in the eyes of the Lord when Euod was dead. And the Lord gave them up into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who was ruling in Hazor, the captain of his army, with Sesra, who was living in Hazareth of the Gentiles. Got 24 minutes left. Okay. Verse 3. Then the children of Israel made prayer to the Lord, for he had 900 iron war carriages, and for 20 years he was very cruel to the children of Israel. Now, Deborah, a woman prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was judge of Israel at the time. So she, Deborah was a prophetess as well as a judge. God allowed her to be a judge. Verse 5, And she had her seat under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her to be judge. And she sent for Barak, the son of Abinah, from Kedesh Navatili, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, given orders, saying, Go, and get your force into line in Mount Tabar, and take with you 10,000 men of the children of Napatili and the children of Zabalon. And I will make Sesra, the captain of Jabin's army, with his war carriages and his forces come against you at the river Kishon, where I will give him into you your hands. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me... <laughs> now, I just read to you that a woman's not supposed to fight, okay? Not supposed to be uh, participating in the military, and Barak wants her to do that. Okay, and verse and Barak said to her, "If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go." Now Barak is showing cowardliness here. He's not showing to be courageous. Verse nine, and she said, "I will certainly go with you, though you will not get no honor in the undertaking." So, in other words, his honor is going to be taken from him—the honor of, of, of victory as a man—because he wanted a woman to go with him. And verse 9, and she said, I will certainly go with you, though you will not get no honor in your undertaking, for the Lord will give Sesra into the hands of a woman. And that is no honor to God for a woman to be victorious in an army, in, in, in an in a, um, army type of setting or in a war setting. That is not honor to God. Okay? He wants to give the honor to the man, to the men who he has ordained to fight wars, not women. So verse 9, and she said, I will certainly go with you, though you will not get no honor, and you will get no honor in your undertaking, for the Lord will give Sesra into the hands of a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kish. Verse ten. Then Barak sent to Zebulon and Naphtali to come to Kish, and ten thousand men went up after him, and Deborah went up with him. Now Haber the Kenite, separating himself from the rest of the Kenites, from the children of Habab, the brother-in-law of Moses, had put up his tent as far away as the oak tree. And Zadanam by Kiddish, and the word was given to Sesra that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sesra got together all his war characters, 900 war characters of iron, and all the people who were with him from Hasherif of the Gentiles as far as the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for today the Lord has given Sesra into your hands. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. Now, this is a time when men weren't men. And, and, and sometimes throughout history, God has raised up women, strong women like Deborah, to provoke the men to be men. Okay, and you you get this in verse four, uh, nine. He didn't want, he wanted Deborah to go with him. 
And Deborah didn't want to go with him, but she did it anyway. And she said, here, this is the penalty of this, though. You will get no honor in the undertaking, for the Lord will give Cesar into the hands of a woman, which is not honorable to God. Not as honorable as giving the victory to a man who it should be given to, because the man is ordained of God to fight in wars, not a woman. So I just want to point that out and underscore that. So anyway, um, verse 14, and God was using Deborah to, to, to make a man out of Barak and the rest of the people uh, that were following Barak. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. Verse 15, and the Lord sent fear on Sisera and all his war carriages and all his army before Barak, and Sisera got down from his war carriage and went in flight on foot. But Barak went after the war carriages and the army as far as Hesroth of the Gentiles, and all Sisera's army was put to the sword, not a man got away. The Sisera went in flight on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the family of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord, come in to me without fear. So he went into her tent, and she put a cover over him. And he said to her, Give me now a little water, for I have need of a drink. And opening a skin of milk, she gave him drink and put the cover over him again. And he said to her, Take your place at the door of the tent, and if anyone comes and says to you, Is there any man here, say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent, pen and, and a hammer and went up to him quietly, driving the pen into his head, and it went through his head into the earth, for he was in a deep sleep from weariness, and so he came to his end. Then Jael went out and meeting Barak after going after Caesar said to him, Come, and I will let you see the man you are searching for. So he came into the tent and saw, and there was Caesar, who was the leader of the army, stretched out dead in the tent pen in his head. So that day God overcame Jabin, king of Canaan before the children of Israel, and just like Deborah prophesied, he lost his army. Uh, Barak lost. He was the leader of Israel's army, and Sesra was the leader of the enemy army. And Barak should have did what this woman did, but of course, because he wanted Deborah to come with him, he was acting wimpish. Um, this was the penalty. Instead of him doing what God wanted him to do, a woman did it instead. So he lost his honor. Verse 40, 43 of Judges. So that day God overcame Jabin, king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. Verse 24, And the power of the children of Israel went on increasing against Jabin, king of Canaan, until he was cut off. Okay, and of course in, in uh, Judges chapter 5, there was a, this is a song that, um, that uh, Deborah, actually this is at a time, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinah made the song. So they both made the song. And it's like Deborah was assisting Barak in becoming a man, a true man, you know, of God. So that is the true story, uh, ladies and gentlemen, of the situation with Deborah being a judge and the fact that um, God raised her up specifically for a special task because there were obviously no men at the time. <laughs> to fulfill their role as a man. So in, in some cases, God will, and he has done this throughout history, he has raised up a strong woman to provoke men to become men. But she was the only judge. If it was the normal thing, then God would have raised up women judges consistently. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And and uh, it's not for women to, in, in most cases, to fulfill that role that a man should fulfill. But in extreme cases like this, when you have 
men not acting like men, and if there's a righteous and strong woman, he will raise that woman up. And proof of that is the Bible in this situation. But it's, a, it's, it's not something that he will do all the time. And it's not something that women should use as support. Hey, we can rule over men. You know, that that's well, we don't have to obey our husbands. That that's ridiculous. All right, so it's the sixteen minutes left. Um I'm just gonna read a little excerpt here of in this book called All the Women of the Bible by uh Herbert Lockyer. I had, I don't have too much time left here, so I need to hurry up and get this done here. Um Jezebel. I'm just going to read what he says about this real quick. Yeah, Jezebel definitely is a woman that you, you don't want to be involved with and you don't want to follow her example. Let's see what page is this on here. Okay. All right, so I'm just going to read a little bit of this here. It says, Jezebel, number one, the woman who was a she-devil. And the, and the scriptural references for you is 1 Kings 16, 31, 18, 4 to 19, 19, 1 and 2, chapter 21, verses 5 to 25, and 2 Kings chapter 9. The meaning of her name is this heartless woman with a blood... This is on page 73 of All the Women of the Bible. The heartless woman with a bloody history um, bellied the name she bore for Jezebel means, or belied the name, means chaste, free from carnal connection. But by nature, she was the most, one of the most uh, wickedest women. She was, a, she was a voluntary with all the tawdry arts of a wanton woman. Thus, no name could have been more inappropriate for such a despised female. So she was very a very wicked person, and and she ruled over her husband. Basically, she influenced her husband, and 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 influenced her husband to do a lot of wicked things. And there's a scripture here that talks about Jezebel here. Uh, Remaining 14 minutes. Let me go ahead and turn the scripture here real quick. It's symbolic, but still, he's talking about Jezebel here, so we need to pay attention to this. Let's see. I think it's in chapter 3 here. That must be chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. There we go. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou suffered that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and the Jezebel in, in the Tanakh of the Old Testament probably did consider herself a prophetess, and she did influence um, 
her husband and other people to commit fornication and, and, and to do to be against God. And women have to be careful of this tendency to want to do that, to want to rebel. So that that's the lesson with Jezebel. Okay. Um, almost done here. And 12 minutes left here. Now, when your husband gets angry with you because you don't want to obey him, and it is not breaking the Torah of God, what he wants you to do, then you will cause friction and division in your marriage. Your husband can be angry and sin not. That's, in, that's found in Ephesians 4, verse 26. And God is angry at the wicked every day. This is found in Psalm 7, verse 11, Psalm 76, verse 7, Psalm 103, verse 8. Your husband rules over you, and you can cause grief to him by not obeying him. This is found in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Let me quote this here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, and your husband is the leader, for they keep watch over your lives as people who will have to render an account. This is a complete... This is the complete Jewish Bible version. So make it a task of joy for them. Make it a task of joy for your husband, wives. Not one of groaning, for that is of no advantage to you, and it's not. It's not of advantage to you for your husband or anyone else that is ruling over you, wives, to to get angry at you. That's not to your advantage. Oh, boy, I have other scriptures here to quote. I don't have that, that many. See, Proverbs uh, 12, verse 4. There's so much stuff to learn and so little time to learn it in. Uh, Proverbs 12, verse 4. It says, A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that maketh a shame is as rottenness in his bones. So when a woman is not obeying her husband, it's like rottenness to his bones. But a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. In Proverbs 14, verse 1, it says, Every wise woman builds her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. Proverbs 19, verse 13. Just look these scriptures up later on. A foolish son is the calamity of his father, and the contentions of a wife are like a continuing dropping. <laughs> so when a wife is nagging, it's like a continuing dropping from a faucet. Proverbs 21, verse 9. It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Verse 19. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentions and an angry woman. Proverbs 25, verse 24. It says, It is better to dwell in the corner of the house up than with a brawling woman and in a wide house. Uh, Proverbs 27, verses 15 and 16. States, A continuing dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. A contentious woman is a woman that wants to argue, that wants to agree, disagree, to have disagreements with her husband. She doesn't seek to want to agree with him. She wants to have conflict. That's a contentious wife. Uh, verse 15, a continuing dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Verse 16, whosoever hideth her hideth the wind and the ointment of his right hand, which betrayeth himself, bereath himself. So it's saying here that, uh, I tell you, the, the original, let me, the original, let's see, Proverbs, original Hebrew of this. Hebrew version, or Hebrew English version, Proverbs 27, verse 15. 
Proverbs 27, verse 15 to 16 in the complete Jewish Bible version. A leak that keeps dripping on a rainy day and the nagging of a wife are the same. Whoever can restrain her can restrain the wind or keep perfume on his hand from making itself known. So it's saying that it's very difficult once a woman gets into this nagging situation to stop it. It's very difficult for a man to stop it, it's saying here. And a woman needs to be aware of this and to stop nagging her husband. When her husband tells you to do something, stop it. You know, don't do it. That's what you have to do. Um, and then uh, Ecclesiasticus. I'm reading this here real quickly here. Chapter 25, starting in verse 13 of Ecclesiasticus of Sirach. It says, uh, There is no venom worse than a snake's venom, and no anger worse than a woman's wrath. <laughs> and then, uh, I would rather live with a lion and a dragon than live with an evil woman. A woman's wickedness changes her appearance and darkens her face like that of a bear. That's what it says here in Ecclesiasticus of Sirach. And verse 20, a sandy accent for the feet of the age, such as a gruous wife to a quiet husband. So it's, it's, it's like being on a slippery slope, basically, when you have a wife that uh, is boisterous and, and a husband is trying to be kind to her and so forth. That's what it's saying. Um Sirach chapter 25, verses 23 to 26, it says, Dejected mind, gloomy face, and wounded heart come from an evil wife. Drooping hands and weak knees come from the wife who does not make her husband happy. From a woman, sin had its beginning, and because of her, we all die. Allow no outlet to water and no boldness of speech to an evil wife. If she does not go as you direct, separate her from yourself. And that's, that's good wisdom for those men are, that are in that situation. Verse 7 of Sirach, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus of Sirach, chapter 26, verse 7. A bad wife is a chafing yoke. Taking hold of her is like grasping a scorpion. <laughs> that's what it says, ladies and gentlemen. So that's a little wisdom from the Apocrypha. And how much time? I have six minutes left. I'm making good time here. Okay, Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34 to 36, says this about the family structure and what's going to happen in the end times. It says, Matthew chapter 10, starting in 34 to 36. It says, Think not that I have come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter and law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foe shall be they of his own household. And this can happen if... The wives don't want to obey their husbands. It can happen, or it can happen the other way. You know, it can happen both ways. Ephesians. And what I mean by the way, the husband not respecting and loving his wife properly. Ephesians chapter six, verse seventeen. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So I'm just quoting that to prove to you that the sword he was talking about was the word of God. So there will be confusion and disagreements when when people don't want to obey the pure words of God. Okay, so I just wanted to, to point that out. Okay, page 71 of Tim Higgs' book here. So it says here, a godly woman. These are the things that, that a godly woman should be. In the remaining five minutes here, I'll cover this. It says, in this chapter, we have given a brief overview of the characteristics of a godly wife as the scriptures portray them, and so forth. And number one, a good wife should have spiritual strength, a willingness to trust that God is in control, and to grow in trust and faith in Him. 
She fears the Lord and studies to know his will and ways. Beauty, both inward and outward. Respect. A husband will respond in wonderful ways toward a wife who lets him know in word and deed that she respects him, that she is for him, and that she will do all in her power to help him succeed. She willingly submits to his leadership. Not by force, but willingly. Verse 4. Doer of good. A godly wife seeks to enhance the lives of her husband and family. Verse 5. Hard worker. She is diligent in her task of making the home a place where the family can be nurtured and where there is a refuge of shalom or peace. She learns to be skillful in these tasks. She is not lazy. She's creative. She is not content with uh, of uh, just normalcy, okay, or mediocrity. Her creativity enhances the home and gives advantages to her family. She's wise. She applies God's teaching, Torah, or Torah, to the practical aspects of life, both for herself and her family. She's strong. She has strength. In her dependence upon God, she finds an inner strength needed to accomplish her task. She's generous. She is willing to help those less fortunate and love. She has committed herself to loving her husband and her children as a top priority in her life. Now, notice it's not just her children that she should love, but also her husband. And her husband and her children should be her top priority in her life. Now, in closing, I have some additional information to add based on my experience uh, with dealing with my wife and, and dealing with uh, other uh, marriage issues. Now, this is what I have uh, discovered over, over my life dealing with my wife and, and also dealing with other uh, people's marriage problems and so forth. Um, this is the rebellion of a husband. And these are things that a husband should not do. When he does not have a close relationship with God, when he doesn't do daily Bible study and prayer, that's rebellion that you need to avoid. When the husband rebels, when he does not teach his wife about the Bible. If, husbands, you don't teach your wife about the Bible on a consistent basis, you're rebelling to God. When he does not have a close relationship with God, this is rebellion. When he verbally and physically abuses his wife, that's rebellion. When he does not provide for her specific needs, when he does not spend enough time with his wife to communicate to her, when he refuses to take care of his body so that he can please his wife and God. Okay? So a husband should take care of his body so he can please his wife and God and be and remain attractive to his wife. When he refuses to have sex with his wife, that's a great abomination when he does that, based on first Corinthians chapter seven. When he commits adultery or looks at any form any form of pornography, that's rebellion. When he does not provide for his family and does not continuously educate himself to remain marketable in the workforce. And I'm going to really emphasize that again. Oops. When he does not provide for his family, does not continually educate himself to remain marketable in the workforce. When he does not strive, when he does not strive to become debt free, and when he incorrectly manages his finances. And the rebellion of a wife is when she does not have a close relationship with God, doesn't do daily Bible study and prayer. She rebels when she sees her husband doing something wrong and does not humbly and meekly tell him. When she refuses to obey her husband when it has nothing to do with disobeying the Torah of God. When she refuses to be his spiritual, or in some cases physical physician when she refuses to support him and be involved in every aspect of her husband's life, when she consistently asks him to do something that does not violate Torah and, she, and he has already told her, no, when she refuses to take care of her body so that she can please her husband and God, when she refuses to have sex, when she commits adultery and or, and or looks at any form of pornography, when she refuses to help her husband with his work or career, and when she refuses to help clean and manage the home and teach the children biblical instruction that she learns from her husband and from God. That's when a wife rebels against her husband 
And that's it with the Bible study. And I hope this will teach husbands and wives to respect and love one another and consider each other as one as a team that will honor and glory God by obeying each other and submitting to each other. May God take care of you. May God bless and keep you. And I'll speak to you next week. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. <laughs> 